we may have one or two that still need seats, and so if you would wouldn't mind just maybe pointing out where there might be an empty seat, and people can come on in and and uh, we had a couple up here. I know for sure got maybe two right here. So if you wanna if you wanna get get on in and and get settled, um, hopefully not for a nap, but for a feast. Um, we're glad that you're here for this hour. Um, I have a paragraph of stuff I'm I'm to read about Corey, so I'm gonna I'm gonna read it. it says that Corey began his work here at the Bear Valley uh, Church in. Uh, uh, 2020, previously served as a pulpit minister with Highlands or the Highland Heights Congregation in Lebanon, Tennessee, and the youth and a youth minister for the Woodland Oaks Congregation in Woodland Oaks, Texas. Additionally, he has preached and conducted gospel meetings in numerous states, including Alabama, Kentucky, Georgia, Louisiana, and Illinois. He has a BA and an MA from Fried Hardeman and hopes to complete a Master of Divinity from Heritage Christian in May of 23. Uh, he shares in this life of ministry with his wife, Paige, and their two boys, Jason Cameron. It's free time, Corey enjoys hiking, listening to audiobooks, and joining his boys in training for martial arts. Dave mentioned this morning when, uh, before Corey led a song that um, don't necessarily have titles in the roles here, but I would say that Corey is de facto, whether entitled that or not, the pulpit minister for here the Bear Valley Congregation. Um, Corey has a number of talents, and if and I assume by the number in this room, you already know that. That's why you're in here. So you don't need me telling you about that. He's a phenomenal song leader. Um, he is a tremendous minister to people, and uh, you can see his heart just in conversations that you have with him. Um, I have been encouraged in our short time here from the positivity that he brings to the church. Uh, I am convinced that if we're going to get out of all of this stuff we talk about being in, He's going to take the leadership of men like Corey who make us feel better about our stand with Christ and about the state of the church and make us feel worse. And so his preaching is an inspiration to me, an encouragement to me, and I'm grateful to be introduced to you now, Corey Waddell. Preach the word. Well, after that, I don't know that I can do any better, so let's adjourn. <laughs> no. It's it's good to be with you this morning, uh, afternoon rather. Feels like morning sometimes after lunch. Good to be with you all. Um, it's interesting how the last time I spoke on the Bear Valley Lectureship, nobody else knew it, but I was one of a handful that we were interviewing for the position at the time, and so I'm, I'm out here checking out everybody, and at the same time, I think a few Bear Valley folks knew, hey, any one of these guys could be here next, and then, uh, you know, just a handful of months later, we were here, uh, but yeah. 2020 was when we showed up, and it made for an interesting transition from the Nashville area, but so glad to be here, so glad to see all of you. I, I want to start with this question this afternoon. Have you ever wanted something so badly that you just prayed about it nonstop? Now, I don't mean, let me tell you what I don't mean. I don't mean like the kid that has their heart set on the bicycle or the video game, and so they're asking God all the time, please don't mommy, daddy, give me that, you know, I don't mean that. I'm talking about the kind of prayer in which you are in the deep throes of pain, stress, anguish, and I need relief now kind of prayer. Mm-hmm. You ever been there? Mm-hmm. Did you get what you asked for? Yes. Or did you have that become an actual kind of situation in which God kind of ultimately said, no. 
And I can think of all kinds of scenarios where we would have gotten one answer one way or the other. You know, maybe maybe we're talking about an illness, an illness has struck you or a loved one, and the prognosis is is dire. Or maybe your marriage is on the rocks, and and you don't want to see this go away. You don't want to see this fall apart. But things aren't looking so hot right now. Maybe someone has taken it upon themselves that they have decided my mission in life is to make you as miserable as I possibly can. (laughs) Or maybe there's been a particular temptation that has stuck with you for a long time. No matter how hard you try, you can't seem to consistently say no to this temptation. In some ways the response of God to our prayers when we are in the deep throes of these pains and these stresses, the the response just to even pray is a little bit of a paradox of Scripture, if you think about it. Because on the one hand, Scripture encourages us to not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, Philippians 4, 6. And then Peter will echo that and tell us that we need to cast all of our anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. And yet we've all experienced those times in which God does not give us what we ask for. In fact, what it seems is that God has just kind of flat out said, No, no, I hear you, but no, you can't have that. What do we do with those? What are we supposed to do with that answer? What what are we supposed to think when that happens? Well, some people take a couple of different negative views of God on it. Sometimes people will realize God said no, and they're going, okay, well, maybe God doesn't care as as much as, as Scripture says that He does. Or maybe God wasn't listening. Maybe God had other things that were going on, and my needs just weren't important enough for God because He had bigger fish to fry. Or maybe some people would go so far as to say, well, maybe this is too big for God. Maybe He actually can't do it. These are some possible answers that people will give, and maybe you've had some of those go through your mind, depending upon how severe your stress was. But I do think we have some other answers that are a lot more biblical <laughs> than, than to say God can't or He won't or He or he's, doesn't care. For example, one ex- one reason why God might tell us no is because He understands the motives behind our asking when we don't. In James chapter 4, verses 1-3, through 3, He said, What quarrels, what causes quarrels, and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire, and yet you don't have. So what do you do? You murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend it on your passions. So sometimes it's possible that God's going to tell us, no, you can't have what you're asking for because, quite frankly, the motives are not where they need to be. We're asking for the wrong reasons. And yet there's one other. And there could be a... Maybe you could come up with more reasons. I'm going to give you one other this morning. It's going to be... Or this afternoon. It's going to be the focus of our time. And sometimes God says no to our troubled requests because He has already given us what we need. Mm -hmm. And that is His grace. Mm -hmm. And we find a prime example of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 
verses 7 through 10. If you have Bibles, open it up. That's where we're going to be. But I want you to take a look with me here, on at least on the screen to start with, where this example that, that Paul gives, it's, he's describing this personal experience in which he had to wrestle through this very answer of, no, you can't have what you're asking for. He writes, beginning in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The purpose of our lecture this hour is to focus up there on verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Because you see, what happened is that Paul is pleading with God to take this thing away, but yet God chose to leave Paul's thorn in place because there was power to be recognized in the sufficiency of the grace that he already possessed. Now, what does that mean? That... His grace was sufficient. Well, here's the interesting. You know how when, you know, those of you that have come through and you've done word studies and whatnot, you say, oh, there's a key word. Let me go dig into that one and find out a little bit more. You know what the word sufficient also means? Enough. (laughs) (laughs) And I found that rather ironic that to say that the word archeo means sufficient is sufficient. (laughs) It doesn't really go any deeper. It, It means what it comes out as. God is telling Paul that the presence of eternal salvation is enough to get him through this. The assurance of eternal victory is adequate enough to endure this pain. Now, I'm going to go ahead and this is not something I, kind of stepping off to the side here, digress a little bit. I'm going to go ahead and recognize the fact that as we talk about this notion of grace being enough, for many of us within churches of Christ, this is going to be a hard topic to wrap our head around. And if I can be blunt with you, it's because we've not talked about grace enough. We, We have misrepresented in some way, and I don't think it's intentionally, But there have been times where we have grossly underestimated and underrepresented God's grace in Scripture. We've created scenarios in our minds to where we say, well, grace got me started. Now it's my job to keep it going. (laughs) Really? Is that not the thrust of what Paul says in Galatians when he says, if you weren't good enough, if you needed grace to get you started, what makes you think you're not going to need grace to keep it going? And so as I say all of that, I understand that there may be some of us in this room or some who may listen to the recording later that that we struggle a little bit through saying that grace is sufficient. And if that's where you're at, let me please suggest that you go dig a lot deeper into what it means to be saved by grace through faith apart from works of law. Because it is the key 
not just to your salvation, but it is the key to your confidence. It is the key to your hope that what you are doing and the, and what God has promised is going to be what gets you to heaven. Mm-hmm. That said, as we explore Paul's experience of what it means to have that sufficient grace, we learn that there are indeed those times where God's grace is enough of the blessing to get us through the difficulties. The assurance that ultimate salvation belongs to us both now and in the future, that assurance enables us to process those times when God says no to the request for relief from the annoyances of life. There are times when we must go through pains because God understands that that's what we need. And when that happens, we need to learn that God's grace is sufficient for us just as it was sufficient for His esteemed apostle. And so what do we do then? Okay, how exactly is the possession of God's grace able to get us through these times, uh, these hard times? What are we supposed to glean from this to to help us cope? Well, from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7-10, I want us to realize that there's three things that God's sufficient grace forced Paul to do or caused Paul to do. Number one, we'll see that sufficient grace caused Paul to wrestle with the pain's usefulness. Secondly, that it that it caused Paul to be to uh, I'm sorry to acknowledge God's power typo there, and it caused Paul to be content with what he had had, with what he already had. So let's break down and kind of go through these. Uh, number one, let's talk about this idea of sufficient grace caused Paul to wrestle with the pain's usefulness. Now, to help us do that, I want us to get a, kind of step back and get a little bit of some context in 2 Corinthians. Uh, here, the, the book of 2 Corinthians is an apology. It, it is a defense of Paul's apostolic ministry. Uh, evidently, there were some people in Corinth, whether they were the original Corinthian Christians or men that came later, I'm not completely sure. But, but these guys had come in, and, and they were really giving the folks a hard time about Paul. They were trying to undermine Paul's ministry. And kind of some of the best guesses are that maybe they were they were uh, pointing out uh, some things that some of Paul's shortcomings. Maybe they were uh, having taking issue with his physical uh, with his physical prowess or maybe his intellectual capabilities. Uh, Paul does not strike me in, in what I read in Scripture as being someone who was visually impressive. Okay. And there are even times where it looks like he wasn't the most eloquent of orators either. And so maybe this is some of what they're doing. There are even those who who would suggest that these these naysayers, these these opponents of Paul, might have even pointed to the fact that, hey, do you see how much hard stuff this guy's going through? Do you see the guy being thrown in prison all the time and he's being shipwrecked and all those different things? Shouldn't that probably tell you that something's not right with this guy when he keeps having all this difficulty? And I step back and I go, isn't that ironic? Isn't that very human of us? Somebody's having a hard time, so therefore we must conclude that God's trying to stop them. And yet Paul, Paul's life is the exact opposite. 
But what happens is that in chapters 10 through 13, Paul is bringing a direct response. He's now going to talk, effectively talk directly to the things that these naysayers, uh, these rebellious naysayers are, are saying. And in chapter 11, I, I find the interesting phrasing. He, he starts getting sarcastic. In case you haven't noticed it, Paul can get very sarcastic at times. And he said, oh, if you would just permit me to engage in a little foolishness. And he starts comparing physical achievements to these other guys, which may be, what, may be the very thing that they are doing with him. And so he goes through that for a little while, but then in chapter 12, as he comes into it, he brings a whole new qualification to whether or not he needs to be listened to. And now let's just get out of the physical, let's go to the spiritual revelations that I've had. And he begins to describe what most everybody believes to be a personal account, even though he never says it's himself. They think it's a personal account where 14 years prior he had been involved, uh, he had this vision and revelation of being caught up into the third heaven and he was hearing things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And sometime after that, sometime after that particular vision or set of visions, God gives Paul the infamous thorn in the flesh. And we all know the question that follows it, right? What was the thorn in the flesh? Here's the truth of the matter. We don't know. Scripture doesn't give us enough information. We, we just simply, he's purposefully ambiguous about it. But, you know, if you, if you go digging through, there's a lot of different things that people have suggested about it. And, and it seems to me that probably two primary options are the ones that most scholars kind of fall around that seem to be most likely. One, is probably the most common, is that people think it was some kind of physical ailment. Okay, maybe his eyesight, as you hear that an awful lot. So that's certainly a possibility that, that he had a physical ailment that was the thorn in the flesh. And then there are others. Um, another that I think is a fascinating one is that maybe it was a, a person or a group of people who were really giving Paul lots of hard time because he said a messenger of Satan. Right? And so it could be that, you know, if you read, you figure that there were a lot of people that chased Paul all over the place. And they tried to undermine his work everywhere that they went. So those are, seem to be two major possibilities. But either way, I do think that there is significant value in the fact that Paul leaves this purposefully ambiguous. Because to just speak of a generic thorn in the flesh allows this text now to apply to so many more things, so to all the various kinds of sufferings that we will go through and that we encounter in life. So when we think about the fact, what was the thorn in flesh? We don't know what it was, but here's what we do know. We do know what its purpose was. Paul says, so then to keep me from being conceited, God gave me the thorn in the flesh. One could easily understand how Paul might become a little bit cocky. Oh, you want to compare? You want to compare achievements? I've sat in God's living room. <laughs> Top that. <laughs> right? And so it's easy to see how Paul could potentially become a little bit cocky when he's been given these visions and he's been told things as, hey, Paul, I'm going to tell you something, but shh, don't tell anybody else. <laughs> but one of the other things that I find kind of interesting, though, is that we don't know how Paul learned 
of the purpose of this thorn in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Now, we can perhaps assume or make a little bit of a presumption that God eventually told him what it was for, but we don't know that. We don't know how he figured it out. And we don't know when he figured it out. Remember how long he said it had been? It was 14 years prior to the writing of this letter that Paul had had this vision. When did the thorn come? I don't know. How long? How long did did Paul wait to pray about that thorn? I, I don't know. We're told he prayed three times. How much time went in between the prayers? Did he, did he sit down in three consecutive days and God finally went, shh, hush? <laughs> or did he ask it over the court? You know, every two or three years, Paul's like, okay, God, really? Am I still going to have to deal with this? We don't know at what point God finally told him, Paul, stop. My grace is sufficient for you to deal with this. But once he knew it, I want you to imagine the wrestling match that went on in Paul's mind as he was trying to to understand and, and wrap his head around this. God had given him this annoyance to keep him humble, to keep his head out of the clouds and his feet on the ground. God knew what the apostle needed. And once Paul understood that God was not going to be removing this thorn and that grace was sufficient, he had to wrestle with the pain's usefulness and he had to accept it. So here's the thing that I figure or I I begin thinking about. In our struggles, we often find ourselves asking the dreaded question, why? Why am I dealing with this? Why is it not going away or why is this dragging on for so long? And indeed, it is really hard to endure pain when you are not convinced that it has a purpose. However, we can trust this. If God allows or sends you a trial, there is a purpose and a value to it. Now that's hard to wrap our heads around. Now as I say that, let 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 me... add this, you want to call an asterisk or whatever, I don't want us to, to, I don't want you to hear me as suggesting that every single problem that you face in your life is God going, uh, that one right there. <laughs> every pain you feel in your life, I don't want you to, to get the, the, the idea or the belief that God literally reached down and struck you with this. But here's what I do want you to understand from this point, is that anything I'm going through Because God lets life go on, right? God stays far enough away that He lets life happen. And whatever things it is that I am facing that are difficulties, God can use them to accomplish His purposes in my life. Whether He necessarily sent it or not, it doesn't matter. God can use it. And when the pain and suffering linger... I want you to think about some of the things that could be happening. When when pain and suffering are lingering in our lives, it could be that God is using that as an opportunity to tell us, hey, my grace is sufficient for you to do this. Which would lead us to also have to wrestle through the pain to see how this struggle, this suffering is enabling me to serve Him better. Mm -hmm. Perhaps like Paul, we need to have our egos checked. 
It could be that God is sending a suffering or allowing a pain in our life in order to bring discipline. The Hebrew author, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 and following, for the Lord disciplines the ones that He loves. It could also be that God is preparing us for a future ministry that we don't yet understand. You ever thought about the fact that God sent Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of preparing Him for His ministry? Mm -hmm. Jesus knew what was going on. We may not always know what's going on, but it could be that whatever I'm dealing with now is going to be something that I'm going to be able to point back to and say, God used that to prep me to help you with this later on. Mm -hmm. Whatever the role the pain serves, we can take confidence that it does have a role to play. And we can be confident that God's grace is sufficient to help us endure the trial while we figure out what that role is. But the second thing that Paul understands or Paul learns is that sufficient grace caused him to acknowledge God's power. I want you to take a look with me at verse 9 again. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. One of the things that suffering does, if it does nothing else, it, one of the things that it accomplishes is that it highlights our shortcomings, mm-hmm. real or perceived. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting to me to see, if you look at verse 10, Paul kind of gives categories of the different sufferings. He says weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. When we think about those, I find it interesting that verse 10 seems to categorically encapsulate all the possible situations where our own inadequacies are put on display. Mm -hmm. Weaknesses occur when our physical bodies fail or when something within our character fails. Those are weaknesses. Insults cut through to what other people see and think about us. Hardships highlight our inability to do something about a difficult about a difficult situation. Persecutions make it clear that somebody else is stronger than I am. And calamities remind us of how much in our life is completely out of our control. In fact, we might even be able to say that suffering, by definition, is the revealing and the extorting of our shortcomings. And that frustration is why we often try to purge our weakness, is it not? We do it with self-help books or, or uh, personal development. Or we do like Paul did and we continually ask God to take that weakness away from me. To take away the inadequacies so that I no longer have to wrestle with them. And yet I like this quote by Scott Hoffman. He says, Indeed, instead of removing the thorn, Christ declared that His own grace would be sufficient for Paul in the midst of his suffering, for in his weakness, for his weakness would provide the platform for perfecting the Lord's power. It became the stage upon which the world could see God working through Paul's life. And you think about it, if the Lord had removed the thorn from Paul's life, that opportunity passes. Thus, grace must be sufficient to get through the pain so that God can be glorified through the weakness of Paul. Now, such a realization, when we begin to to wrestle with this, we begin to figure out, okay, or, or ask a really key question. And it's instead of the why, now we begin to ask the what. What is it that is most important in this life? 
Is our aim in life to be comfortable? Is our aim in life to be materially prosperous? If that's the case, then weakness is bad. Because weakness gets in the way of all of that. Weakness makes me hurt, so therefore I'm not comfortable. Weakness makes me fail, so therefore I don't have the success. But the reality is that our purpose is to glorify God as our Creator and to be like Him because we bear His image. That is our purpose. To be like God and to glorify Him. And yet our fight to rid ourselves of every weakness and to rid ourselves of every suffering often makes it difficult to live out that purpose because we keep trying to do too much on our own. We keep trying to be everything that we're never going to be able to be. And it gets in the way of us realizing that true purpose. However, Paul realized that when grace is sufficient, God is able to do so much more than when he, Paul, fought against that grace or fought against those weaknesses. And this permeates the whole letter of 2 Corinthians. For instance, in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, uh, same book, Paul said, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward our God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And then he'll say later on in chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Where's the power coming from? Not in Paul's capability. And so he's talking about this all through the letter, and then you get to chapter 12, verse 9, and there there it finally comes to that fruition. It finally comes to that that telos, um, that, that maturity, that purpose. He says, Paul, my grace is sufficient because my power is made perfect. Completed. It comes to fulfill. It is fulfilled, filled up to its to its uh, to its purpose. And I like the way that Ben Witherington said it. What is evident when it is evident that Paul is weak, it will be equally evident that the power in miracles and conversions could not be coming from a human source, but coming from Christ, working in and through Paul. Thus, weakness makes Paul more translucent so that one can see the source of the real power and light that is in him. And then Linsky can follow this up by showing that we, in the same way that Witherington talks about that power in Paul, Linsky comments that we have that same thing going on in us. He says this power works and does things in us as well. It has much to do when it has brought us to the point where we are utter weakness. Its task is finished. It has then shaped us into a perfect tool for itself. As long as we sinners imagine that we still have some power, we are unfit instruments for the Lord's hands. He still has to work on us before He can work properly through us. But when He has reduced us to utter nothingness, then the telos, the purpose, is reached. With such a tool, the Lord can do great deeds.
Our own suffering provides an ideal platform, an ideal stage for God's power to be completed in our lives. It is the opportunity that we have to point others to the thing that does last forever, eternal life. Our sufferings are the opportunity to show grace under pressure. They are the opportunity for us to show calm in the storm. Why? Because we have God's sufficient, ever-abundant grace to sustain us. But then the third thing that sufficient grace does for Paul is that it sufficient grace caused Paul to be content with what he had. Arguably, this might be the most foundational lesson of them all. Certainly one of the easier ones to pull from the context. Paul concludes in chapter 12, verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Max Licato in his book, uh, The Grip of Grace, defines contentment as a state of heart in which you would be at peace if God gave you nothing more than what He already has. I kind of like that definition. And this was Paul's ultimate challenge. Could he go on... Could he go on living and working day after day and be at peace with this thorn in the flesh? Could he still praise God as being wonderful even if he didn't get his way? And for Paul, the answer was a resounding yes. Yes, I can be content and still call God wonderful even though I'm going through this difficulty. And we see that all through Paul's writings, even outside of 2 Corinthians. He told the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 11, verses 11 through 13, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And if any, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do, and we all, uh, maybe you've heard it, it's not accomplished, it's the word what? I can endure I can endure all things through Him who strengthens me. To his young protege, Timothy, Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. You see, for Paul, contentment was the greatest weapon against worry and distraction. It was the result of trusting God to provide every necessity so that we can seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness first and foremost. Being content with what he had enabled Paul to find joy in a jail cell, to stave off materialism, and to endure a painful thorn in the flesh. Have you noticed our society's obsession with more? It's everywhere. 
We seem to never be able to get enough. Go to a restaurant. Not too long from now, a lot of us are going to go sit down in a restaurant and we're going to be able to get a burger and fries. You know what? The burger and fries is enough to fill up my belly. But at some point, when I start picking up that last French fry or the last few, the waiter, the server is going to come around and say, would you like dessert with that? Yeah. Somebody already said, yeah. <laughs> it's more. Do I need it? No, I'm already full. But yet I can find room for that ice cream. <laughs> it's more. Three or four decades ago, PCs and laptops revolutionized productivity at work. However, nowadays you can have that work anywhere through tablets, phones, watches, and suddenly a laptop is no longer sufficient to do your work. You've got to have three devices in order to make it happen. A few years ago, the Disney, ESPN, and Discovery channels were sufficient to give us fun, cable-sourced entertainment. But not anymore. Now we are offered more access to more content through Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, Plus, and Discovery+. Plus. <laughs> Let's face it, in modern times, we have found all kinds of ways to get what we want, when we want it, and if it's not to our liking, we can get more. Mm -hmm. Now, while that is not inherently bad, there is an argument to be made that our obsession with more can and has skewed our understanding of life, particularly with regards to hardship and suffering. I'm going to reference you back to, to Lakato's book, In the Grip of Grace. Hey, Lakato pictures a scene at the beginning of the chapter on, on this text in which a chartered plane is about to go down in a plane crash. And the pilot is scrambling to try to get these people, their parachutes, get them out the door so that they don't all burn up. But in the course of the story, as the pilot is scrambling to do this, he was met with request after request for more. Uh, could, I get a, could I get a pink parachute? Can you, can you assure me that I'm not going to get seasick on the way down? Like I'm not going to get sick in my stomach on the way down? Uh, can't we just come up with another plan? I, I got an idea. Let's just crash the plane and see how well we do. <laughs> and it's just one thing after another. And, and, after, and with every requ request, the pilot becomes more and more frustrated until finally he looks at all the people and he says, Don't you understand? I've given you a parachute to get out of this situation. It is enough. It's what you need. And this story illustrates that our modern obsession with more has lessened our acceptance of sufficient. And in the words of my, of my family's favorite animated movie, Over the Hedge, enough is never enough. <laughs> to put that in more biblical terminology... Many of us have lost what it means to be content with what God has given us. Sometimes the best thing is for us to have what is needed instead of asking for more. And when that is the case, there is no one better than the Lord to be able to decide what that limit is. The truth is perhaps most accentuated when we are suffering. 
we know as Christians that God's grace is ours. And it will eventually mean our glorification in heaven. And yet, influenced by our more culture, we find ourselves asking for grace plus. And it effectively takes this shape. God, I know. I know You've forgiven my sins. I know that I have security in Your grace. But God, I am not going to be okay now unless I have Your grace plus fill in the blank. The search for grace plus can lead us to a state in which we have no peace. Because again, enough is never enough. It can cause us to question God's wonderfulness because He's not granted our request for more. However, when we finally come to grips with the fact that we have what we have, it forces us to shift our focus away from getting to being. I no longer have to worry about getting more, but now I can be what I am in Christ. We learn to endure and find strength in the one who provides our needs. And we remember that this life is not the pinnacle of our existence, but the reality of the human condition in a fallen world waiting to be redeemed. That's what this life is. The peace of contentment enables us to look past the pain of suffering and to see the usefulness of the experience. It tears down the notions of self-help and erects the stage of weakness so that God's power is put on display through our tranquility in the midst of the storm. And all of this happens because of the power of God's sufficient grace. Thank you.